Hello, everybody. I'm Helena Carbon. I'm honored to be the president of Just World Educational, a small nonprofit located in Washington, D.C., in the traditional lands of the Piscataways, although honestly, I'm currently right now in New York City. Today is June 18th, 2022. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. Our guest today on this series on the urgency of banning nuclear weapons is Joseph Gerson, who's the executive director of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament and Common Security and vice president of the International Peace Bureau. Gerson is a veteran anti-nuclear organizer who has just been at meetings in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia on the international coordination of nuclear weapons free zones. And he is with us today from Vienna where he's been attending many, where he is attending many of the meetings of the Nuclear Ban Week being organized there by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, in connection with the first ever meeting of states parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. I'm so glad you can be with us, Joseph. It's my pleasure. This is the fifth public conversation we've held in this series. You can see the records of the previous four if you follow the link that is prominently on the homepage of our website, www.justworldeducational.org, actually, or if you follow this link. If you follow the link, you can also learn more about the upcoming sessions in this series, which will include another great conversation with someone who's also in Vienna for the TPNW meetings, Tom Unterreiner, who's the chairman of Britain's veteran campaign for nuclear disarmament and also runs Europeans for nuclear disarmament. That'll be next Saturday at noon Eastern. On Wednesday evening, we'll have a special session on the role Israel has played over the decades as a major nuclear proliferator and the near silence of members of the US political elite over that blatant hypocrisy and scofflory. Oh, I love that word, scofflory. <laughs> Not even sure it's a word, but I just like it. I am really delighted that today, people in the NATO countries who have become newly concerned about the risks of nuclear conflict because of the ongoing crisis in Ukraine, at least have a burgeoning global nuclear ban movement that can give us all hope that abolishing these weapons of terror once and for all is a real possibility. That was not the case during, say, the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, but it is true today, thanks to the efforts of the millions of people led by nations of the global south that has built the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW, which came into force in 2017. As of now, 86 states have signed the TPNW and 62 have fully ratified it. Sadly, our country is not a signatory. I see our job as being to rebuild an anti-nuclear movement that's strong enough to push our government to sign on to this very important treaty, the TPNW, and to push for the total abolition of nuclear weapons. It is always sobering to remember that if nuclear annihilation happens, it will be a much speedier and more total form of annihilation than anything that climate change can cause. So we're lucky to have with us today someone who has worked tirelessly on these issues for many decades now, Joseph Gerson, our project director here at Just World Ed, Amel Zarub, 
will be leading the conversation with Joseph today while I dip behind the scenes and do the Zoom teching. If you need anything from me, I'll be in the chat box. I hope we'll have a good time for Q&A after Amel has finished her conversation with Joseph. So now over to you, Amel. Thank you, Helena. It's really wonderful to have Joseph on today. Um, I'd like to start with asking you, you know, how long have you been involved in nuclear weapons abolition work? You know, it, um, it it surprises me when I think about how long it's been. Uh, it's it's been what a bit over forty years. Um, uh, you know, my 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 first consciousness. You know, we, as a kid, we all read uh, uh, Hiroshima by John Hersey, but you know that was that was abstract. It was distant. It was far away. And actually, the wake up for me was in nineteen seventy three uh, when I was here in Europe. Uh, we thought the uh, was then called the October War was over, and I woke up one morning. Uh, people I was staying with were listening to Armed Forces Radio uh, to learn that Henry Kissinger had put U.S. nuclear weapons on alert, uh, and that sort of, in some ways, opened opened the way for me to understand the relationship of nuclear weapons to uh, you know what really is is, is U.S. empire uh, and U.S. foreign and military policies. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Um, how, how did you first, you know, become involved, or, or what were the first steps that you took to? Um, so, so that was sort of a wake-up call. It took me a while to kind of process it, uh, but um, uh, I became aware that there was a pattern of during international wars and, and crises uh, that the United States would, uh, much as Putin has done now. Uh, threaten the, the possibility of a first strike nuclear attack. Uh, and um, you know, we've just now celebrated the 40th anniversary of the June 12th, 1982 uh, demonstration. Uh, I, was, I was involved deeply with the movement at that time, supervising staff who were helping to, to organize it. Um, but what most people don't think about now and didn't think about then was shortly before June 12th, I think it was uh, on the 5th, uh, the Israelis had, had invaded um, Lebanon. Uh, and I was deeply aware that you know, behind, behind the Israelis stood the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And if the Syrians intervened, that meant that the Russians were behind and we faced the possibility of a nuclear confrontation. And I did everything that I could to try to get the organizers to uh, break their, their previous decision that there'd be no references to uh, foreign military intervention in that demonstration, uh, I was partially successful. But after that, I spent a lot of time with Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who had been, uh, uh, you know, he's best known for, for making the Vietnam, uh, you know, the Pentagon Papers available and helping to bring an end to the war. Uh, but uh, most people don't know that Dan was a principal designer of US nuclear war policy for Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and to a limited degree, uh, Nixon. And with him, I began to, to sort out to, to learn more about this. And you know, that led to early conferences that I organized, uh, books that I wrote, and so on. So you just touched on this, but um, can you talk a bit more about the role of, of nuclear weapons in, in upholding American hegemony? How sure. they changed uh, American military strategy or, or diplomacy? Sure. So actually, it's interesting. There's a lot of continuity. Um, Secretary, former Secretary of Defense uh, Brown, Harold Brown, uh, in his valedictory testimony 
and then more recently, the former um, head of strategic command, uh, Charles Richards, like his name, both both said that the, the 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 primary purpose and function of U.S. nuclear weapons is not so much deterrence uh, as it is to make our, our 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 pursuit, our ability to fight conventional wars possible by by making the threats. Uh, it keeps, as Noam Chomsky would, would say, uh, it ensures that no other nation will come to the assistance of countries that we're determined to, to attack. Uh, it's, it's a model that we've used many, many times. And, you know, interestingly and appropriately, I mean, people are very upset by what Putin has done, uh, but the way Putin has used it uh, prevented the West from uh, organizing no-fly zones and from putting in Western troops uh, in, into Ukraine. And you know whether it's whether it's in relationship to Korea, whether it's with Vietnam, many many times in the Middle East, uh, this has been the pattern that the U.S. has, has pursued more than on more than thirty occasions. And we're just very lucky uh, that um, uh, you know we, we haven't had the the, the accidents or the miscalculations that that could have ended and ended life as we know it. Well, and and on that, what are the the nuclear dimensions and ramifications of the of the war in Ukraine. So, sort of two levels. I mean, we're not out of it, out of the out of the uh, the greatest danger now. At the beginning of the war, um, senior figures on all sides uh, were were saying that there 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 are parallels to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that we should not pull too hard on the Gordian knot of war. So, so there's the possibility uh, that. On the one hand, if, if uh, Putin finds that his forces are caught in a, uh, an endless war, uh, much as both uh, the Soviets and, and the US were in, in Afghanistan, that bleeds their, bleeds their strength. Uh, and this, of course, is the stated goal now of the United States. Uh, it could, he's threatened, we don't know that it will happen, that they're also denying it, but he could launch a tactical nuclear weapon uh, to terrorize Ukraine and force and into the war on his terms. Uh, you know, the, 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 a, a, a small nuclear weapon uh, could be the size of Hiroshima uh, or Nagasaki A-bombs. It's, it's not like something small. Uh, and Kissinger has, has said that were uh, the Russians to break that taboo, we would have to respond. Uh, so there's not been any war games that I'm aware of uh, where there's been the use of, of tactical nuclear weapons it has not led to escalation. The other possibility, and again, you know, the, I, I'm amazed, constantly amazed with the kind of arrogance and, if you will, the ignorance of people in Washington. Uh, so as we have this rhetoric of winning the war, uh, which is really an impossibility or near impossibility, but, but were, were the Russian military to find itself somehow on the verge of defeat, uh, again, the temptation to for, for the Russians to uh, use tactical nuclear weapons would be great. Uh, the The Russian nuclear doctrine uh, is that they would uh, only use their nuclear weapons uh, if the if their state is um, is in jeopardy. Well, Putin is their state, so if you have the country being bled, uh, or if you face a military defeat, Putin's rule would be jeopardized, and that then brings us into a situation where up against the wall, uh, he might take a really desperate action. So why is it so critical that that the U.S. lead the movement for abolition? Well, you know, 
the U.S. is not going to lead the movement for abolition. You know, this this is sort of like saying, you know, the old slave masters should should lead the lead the campaign for abolition of of, uh, of slavery. Uh, what's more important, I think, is you know the United States having been you know the basically the driving force of, of nuclear arms races uh, and and continuing to hold the planet uh, in jeopardy uh, needs to face the, 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 the reality uh, that, that, that even preparing, as even the Sapopa said, preparing for nuclear weapons, for a nuclear war, is, is, is it's insanity. Um, you know, I've been to Hiroshima and Nagasaki many times. Uh, I've worked closely with, with A-bomb survivors. And uh, Helena was making reference earlier today to, to, to the sessions here in Vienna uh, at the uh, ICANN conference, which began with the testimonies of, of A-bomb survivors. And they're not limited to Japan. I mean, A-bomb survivors are from Kazakhstan. A-bomb survivors are from the Midwest, from the, from the Western United States. They're uh, veterans of the, of the US military. Uh, but when you, when you deeply engage in it, when you understand uh, that even the use of a small tactical nuclear weapon is the imposition of total hell, uh, and, and threatens the annihilation of the human race, uh, then it really becomes incumbent to do everything you can uh, to work for their, for their abolition. Uh, the United States is you know, now on track to spend what, $1.7 trillion uh, to uh, replace its entire, uh, upgrade its entire nuclear arsenal uh, and all of the delivery systems. Uh, so when, when we don't have enough money to provide COVID vaccines for everybody, uh, when we don't have adequate money to pay teachers uh, and our schools are in, in, in serious jeopardy, uh, you know, the, the money is there. And in part, it's being uh, spent in preparation for the end of human life. I mean, it's madness. And so what are the political and technical steps that would need to be taken for the U.S. to eliminate nuclear weapons? Ooh, well, you know, politi politically, you know, I think we, we don't, you don't want to look to the leaders of the country, the people of power, the Lindsey Grahams of the world, uh, to, to be providing leadership on this. Uh, it has to come from below. Uh, it has to come from, from, a, from a popular movement, from popular will. And we, have, we have experienced this in the, in the nuclear field in terms of the freeze movement of, of the early 1980s, uh, which uh, essentially uh, made major contributions to the end of the Cold War. It's you know the same with the women's rights movement, the same with the the, the rights for uh, freedom for people of color in our country. It has to come from below and to make it impossible for politicians to do anything else. And then the next steps. I mean, we're in a situation now with the with the Ukraine war, um, and and the, the policies of the last twenty years, where we're approaching what's what's been described as a new ice age. So beginning with the, um, the, 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 the W. Bush administration, uh, the United States moved to eliminate uh, all the arms control agreements that we had with Russia, uh, which you know, provided strategic stability. Uh, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, uh, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the Open Skies Treaty, uh, you name it. Uh, so we're in a situation now uh, we're on, on top of that, you have just total lack of trust on all sides. 
where we need to begin recreating strategic stability. Um, that's not nuclear disarmament, uh, but to begin to create the communication, the trust building, which is difficult in the middle of a war, uh, that could provide the foundation for uh, disarmament negotiations. Uh, that, that has to be our, our first priority. And it applies not only to US and Russia, but US and China. Uh, and in the United States, uh, there's been little, little awareness, little regard uh, for the degree of, of military confrontations going on uh, in, in the Asia Pacific. And while um, uh, the Biden administration and the country as a whole uh, appear to be so focused on Ukraine and reinforcing US power uh, in, in Europe and to contain Russia, the real game for the longer term is, is competition for global dominance with China. The United States has hundreds, you know, the United States has, the, American, the, the Pacific Ocean has been an American lake since 1975. And, you know, few people are aware of, you know, the, the, the construction, the basis of the U.S. empire began in 1898 with the conquest of the Philippines, Samoa, uh, Guam, uh, as a way to, to get the, the um, coaling stations needed to carve out our share of the China market. Uh, and, and we're now in a situation which is described as a Thucydides trap uh, of, of the, the, the tensions between rising and declining powers. Uh, many provocative uh, military actions around Taiwan, the South China Sea, uh, and, 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 and deep, you know, the, you look at Taiwan, Taiwan has become the hinge of the struggle for global power. Uh, and uh, we're... Uh, with commitments have been made by the United States to Taiwanese independence and to defending it. And these have been reinforced and actually expanded by Biden. Uh, the situation is that were China to attempt to take over Taiwan, uh, the Biden administration, the US and Trump as well, are committed to defending Taiwan. Well, define, Taiwan cannot be defended by conventional military means. The only way that the US is, is, is able to maintain its dominance there is by the threat of, of, of nuclear attack. And it's because of the fear that um, uh, removing the nuclear threat uh, would serve as an invitation for the Chinese to um, uh, take over Taiwan, uh, that the Biden administration has reinforced US first strike uh, doctrine. I mean, most people think that our nuclear weapons are there principally for deterrence. Not so. Uh, they're there to maintain our, our dominance and power around the world. Well, thank you. Um, I want to come back to, to the work that you've been doing. Um, so you were just in Mongolia. Could, could you tell us a little bit about the, the conference? Sure. So I think, the, I think the last place I ever expected to go was Mongolia. It's a long way from Boston. Uh, but, but over the years, you know, I've done some work uh, with conferences and side events uh, in the United Nations uh, during uh, international conferences uh, held there uh, to, to try to uphold the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And in that work, I, I had the privilege of, of meeting and working with the, um, uh, the Mongolian ambassador to the UN, uh, a man who also um, subsequently uh, it's been on the board of the um, International Peace Bureau with me. Uh, and you know, Mongolia has the, the only, the sole single nation nuclear weapons free zone 
basically declaring you know no no nuclear weapons on their territory uh, and so on uh, and and um, uh, I got this invitation from him asking me to come to a conference uh, there uh, which uh, would um, uh, honor their 30 years of, of having a nuclear weapons free zone uh, and you know with the goal of expanding that um, more regionally uh, especially to to Northeast Asia the I think the biggest surprise for me uh, because I had not been a scholar of, uh, of, of Mongolia um, uh, was was to learn the roots of their um, nuclear weapons free zone uh, in their um, in their commitment to independence, uh, independence from China and independence from Russia. Uh, and um, uh, you, know, you, you listen and you learn. Uh, so you, you, again, most people here are unaware that uh, in the late 1960s, the Chinese and Russians um, almost went to war. Um, there were clashes along their border. Tensions had been building for some time. Uh, and the Soviets deployed nuclear weapons uh, into, uh, into Mongolia. Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when Mongolia was able to reassert its independence, uh, one of the first things they did was to declare their nuclear weapons free zone as a way to reinforce their, their independence, both from Russia and from China. And uh, this is something that they are uh, uh, pursuing with, 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 with great intensity. I was. I have to say, I was quite impressed uh, by the um, commitments of, of members of the Mongolian elite. I mean, who thinks about the Mongolian elite, right? Uh, but, but here is the former president, uh, former national security advisor, uh, senior ambassadors, all of whom have uh, helped to create and then to um, uh, work through the United Nations and otherwise to make sure that their nuclear weapons free zone is, um, is, is protected. Now, this may seem very abstract to people. How does it relate to the wider world? Well, one of the things that they'll tell you, uh, and this comes back here to the Treaty on, on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, is that in the face of, of the nuclear weapon states, the big powers uh, ignoring and, and uh, continuing their arms races, non-nuclear weapon states have to do what they can to limit the dangers. Uh, and so with the creation of, 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 of nuclear weapons-free zones, which cover much of the face of the earth, uh, they're in some ways surrounding and isolating the nuclear powers and providing a foundation for, for human survival into the future. And so how do you see nuclear weapons free zones um, you know, as relating to the push for, for a nuclear weapons free world? Can you expand on that a little bit more? Sure, I think people are, are quite conscious here. As I, as I was saying, um, and, and it relates absolutely to the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, you know, non-nuclear weapon states um, have, have felt marginalized, right? Um, many of them intimidated by the nuclear powers. Uh, and so what is it that they can do uh, to exercise agency to limit the dangers and threats uh, of, of the nuclear powers? And so, you know, whether it's a nuclear weapons free zone for Africa, for Latin America, for Southeast Asia, it's a way of trying to mark off regions of the world uh, where they will not permit uh, the, 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 the presence of, of, of nuclear weapons uh, and certainly not to be attacked by nuclear weapons. Uh, and the, the, the different zones are to different degrees respected by the nuclear powers, uh, some more so than others. 
and you know it, it, it's a fight. They see it as a step, uh, a necessary step uh, toward um, eliminating nuclear weapons. I mean, the danger, you know, one wants to one wants to be a a, um, a force of hope, right? Um, at the same time, you know, we we need to recognize that we're in a particularly dangerous moment now, um, not only out of Ukraine, but we're in a situation where we have major nuclear arms races. We're not, we're not reducing the number of nuclear weapons. They're being increased by the nuclear powers. Uh, and then with, with the Ukraine war, we have greater um, pressures for proliferation. Uh, you know, so, you know, the concern, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine inherited the Soviet nuclear arsenal uh, and gave it up uh, with, with, with guarantees uh, that they would not be attacked, that their sovereignty would be protected. And of course, that was not respected. So in some countries, maybe Iran too, uh, you know, they're looking at this and saying, well, you know, if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, would they have been attacked? And uh, this is, this is uh, leading to uh, demands, certainly in Asia, where um, in, in South Korea, the, the new conservative government is asking the US to bring its nuclear weapons back there. Uh, similar pressures in Japan. Uh, and um, and there are discussions in the right wing of in both of these countries about the possibility of them becoming nuclear weapon states. Uh, so so it's critically important now that we do everything we can uh, to, uh, if you will, build a build a, a bastion uh, against uh, proliferation and the acceleration of the arms race. Thank you. Uh, actually, coming back to that uh, the the map that my colleague uh, mm -hmm. Helena just shared. Why is it that the global South is is leading the movement for nuclear weapons-free zones? <laughs> they don't want to be part of a nuclear war, uh, and and you know it's um, you know there's a kind there's a kind of an arrogance of privilege and an arrogance of power uh, in the North, um, an assumption you know that it's 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 these white people of privilege who um, know what's best for the world uh, and who disregard. Uh, the, the, the needs and interests of other nations. And, and the reality is that many of these nations, even some that are authoritarian and, and have some corruption, um, uh, are well aware uh, that they need to take steps to protect, to protect humanity. Uh, you know, I certainly saw this in Mongolia, uh, where you have you know, the uh, educated, educated elite uh, um, in a very traditional culture, uh, who have taken the steps that are that are needed. You've had brilliant leadership uh, in terms of nuclear disarmament from over the years from Mexico. Uh, Egypt has been trying to uh, lead the negotiation of a Middle East nuclear weapons-free zone for years, uh, and it has considerable international support behind it. But Israel is, is the obvious obstacle. Um, so it's it's people looking after their interests, uh, recognizing the danger. Uh, and, and and taking informed informed steps. And and speaking of the the conference that you just attended, um, do you have some quick snapshots to share of, of your experience from Mongolia? Mm -hmm. um, snapshots. Um, yeah, I mean, as I said before, the thing that was most striking to me uh, was an appreciation of the. Um, of, of the recognition uh, of um, 
the need to maintain their independence from both China and Russia, something we don't think much about, and how, how their nuclear weapons free zone plays into this. Also, a lot of discussion there about the possibility of creating a Northeast Asian nuclear weapons free zone. We need to appreciate that um, you know, Korea has been divided now for what, 70, almost 70 years. Uh, the war there never ended. Uh, and while uh, we and the Japanese have been preoccupied by North uh, and, the, and the South Koreans, in many ways preoccupied by North Korea's development of a nuclear arsenal, you know, we don't really think about the fact that that arsenal was built in response to almost a dozen U.S. nuclear threats to eliminate North Korea uh, and, and continuing military buildup. Uh, and, you know, there were, there were opportunities along the way, uh, you know, back in, in, in 2000, uh, there was a negotiation of a, of a comprehensive agreement with, with North Korea uh, that then Bush, when he came into power, just did away with. Uh, and, and, you know, we're in a situation where the North Koreans, you know, oppressive as they may be, uh, have been you know, building, building their arsenal. Uh, so you have um, models and proposals coming out of Japan, coming out of um, South Korea and, uh, and Mongolia uh, for uh, the creation of a, of a, of a uh, nuclear weapons-free zone uh, with considerable, considerable studies and, and political efforts in this, in this regard. So that, that jumped out. The other thing, uh, again, uh, you know, for many of us, uh, Genghis Khan, uh, is, is a mythical figure, right? A man who conquered much, much of the world. Um, striking to be in Mongolia to see how a thousand years later, uh, he's seen as the father of the nation, of the nation uh, as a source of inspiration, uh, 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 appreciated and respected for the administrative skills and innovations uh, that, that he initiated, not only for Mongolia, but for the world. That was, that was pretty interesting too. Um, what else to say? Um, I guess the other pieces there, and kind of related actually to Genghis Khan, was just the degree of commitment uh, of, of these people, not only, uh, not only um, Mongolians, but uh, people from, uh, from Japan, from China, from, from other countries. Uh, and I was also very, very privileged to have conversations with a senior uh, Russian researcher uh, talking about dynamics between you know the U.S. NATO on one hand and, and Russia on the other, and what might what might follow Putin. Um, so you know, to, it, it, I, I don't under I don't underestimate the uh, the privilege and the opportunities that come with, with with participation in these kind of conferences and try to do what I can to to build from them. What other nations do you see as as leading the struggle for nuclear abolition? Nuclear abolition. Well, actually, Austria has played a very strong role in this. Um, uh, you know, one time after after the the, the movement, the way you go back, I mean, the Norwegians um, and others uh, in the difficult meetings in the nuclear non-proliferation treaty conferences. I mean, basically, what happens? You have this really one of the seminal treaties of the 20th century was was the NPT. And it's built on three legs, uh, grand bargain. Uh, on the one hand, the nuclear powers in Article Six committed to engage in good faith negotiations for the complete elimination of the nuclear weapons. And in exchange, the non-nuclear weapons uh, states 
uh, forswore ever becoming nuclear powers and were given the uh, inalienable right uh, to uh, generate nuclear power for peaceful purposes, a serious flaw. Uh, and what you have is that the nuclear powers have consistently refused to implement their, their obligations, right? So it's out of that refusal uh, that um, the pressures leading to the negotiation of the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons emerged. And it began uh, with, um, with, with Norway and several other countries uh, saying, we need to change the frame of reference. Instead of looking at nuclear weapons as the guarantee of national security uh, and, and a national security uh, paradigm, uh, we need to come back to the basics, right? What, do, what are the human consequences of nuclear weapons? What have they already wrought on humanity, uh, including you know, the um, uh, illnesses, the deaths, the dangers uh, coming from the, the, nuclear, uh, the nuclear fuel cycle? Um, you know, workers who've created these people uh, in, in within, I mean, people, many, many people in the Western United States have died as a result of U.S. nuclear weapons testing. Uh, and, you know, I was at, I was at one of the meetings. Yeah, I think it was actually here in, in, in Vienna, um, a series of three conferences on the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. And, uh, and, and in, the, in the last one here, uh, in addition to Japanese and Australian nuclear weapons victims, there was a woman from St. George, Utah, uh, who uh, was wheeled onto the stage. Uh, and, and unlike other people who are reading speeches, she gave an extemporaneous from the heart uh, speech, which began by saying, my government has killed me, uh, explaining how she was dying of cancer how many other people in St. George uh, area uh, also dying as a function of the, of the fallout uh, from, from, from the testing. Uh, and it's this transition. I, uh, and then there's a really quite remarkable diplomat here, uh, Alexander Kement, uh, Austrian uh, diplomat. Uh, and um, uh, I was with him, you know, I lose track of the years. It must have been... Um, uh, maybe it was, it was 2017, 2016 perhaps, uh, in Nagasaki, I was sharing a panel with him. And he'd been at the, at the World Conference Against A&H Bombs, uh, which is sort of the, you know, the anniversary and the seminal, seminal event. And it was clear how, how much he had taken in the testimonies, uh, the pain, the history, uh, commitments uh, of the uh, A-bomb victims in Japan. Uh, and, and then it led him to, to organize uh, the conference that I just described here, uh, leading to the um, negotiation of the TPNW. Other countries, I, I was another person who was on the, maybe that panel or another one, I was very impressed by actually ambassador from Ireland, um, who um, uh, really, really saw uh, great opportunities in, the, in the, the possibility of this negotiation. One other person who Actually, the International Peace Bureau is going to be honoring uh, in this, this August uh, is Ambassador uh, uh, White Gomez uh, from, uh, from, from Costa Rica. Uh, she was the diplomat who oversaw the negotiation of the TPNW uh, in, um, at the United Nations uh, several years ago. So, you know, the, the number of people, Brazilians have played a major role, a man named uh, uh, Sergio Duarte, uh, who was the high representative um, uh, for, 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 for nuclear weapons 
at, at the UN. Uh, and to appreciate, even as I name you know, these kind of high, you know, officially high-ranking figures, what they've done is only possible because of social movements from below. And, and, and you know, that's what we have to look at regenerating. And my, my, my hope is that uh, with, with quite a number of people in the United States and certainly other countries uh, having been shocked by, by Putin's nuclear threats, uh, that this will help to remind us of the immediacy, potential immediacy of, of the danger. I mean, the, the Bolton atomic scientists um, created by some of the people who uh, invented the A-bomb way back when in, in the 40s, uh, they have what's called their doomsday clock. And, and every year uh, they um, do analysis in terms of how close humanity is to apocalypse, uh, principally from nuclear weapons. And they set their doomsday clock in quite a public ceremony to try to send out the warning uh, to, to humanity. Uh, for the last couple of years, that clock has been set at 100 seconds to midnight. It has never been closer than that. Uh, trying to, to help us understand the immediacy of, of the danger. Thank you. Um... I, I, I want to come back to uh, the the ICANN gatherings in in Vienna. I, I was wondering if um, you've had any kind of uh, interesting experiences so far. Well, it just it just began this morning, and, and truth to tell, my train was late last night. I got in at two o'clock in the morning, uh, so uh, so I've engaged to a degree. Uh, I and you know basically, I think there are two major functions. Uh, for this conference. I'm not speaking for the organizers, but it'd be my, my observation. Uh, on the one hand, it's to um, uh, generate as much popular support pressure from below uh, for the meeting of governments that'll take place here beginning on Monday uh, to make the most of this opportunity to press for uh, the, the deepening commitments of the countries that have ratified uh, the treaty uh, and to press them to reach out to engage other countries. I mean, one of the provisions of the of, of the of, of the TPNW is that those who have ratified it will take actions to to try to bring other new, other states and other nuclear weapon and the nuclear weapon states in. The other thing, which uh, is interesting to me, you know, in addition to the big plenary, uh, there's a number of, of of workshops on a range of issues. Uh, and I think most of the people here are relatively young, uh, and that's a delight to me. Uh, and I think what, what, what those sessions are doing is helping to educate uh, and motivate a, a new generation of nuclear, nuclear weapons abolitionists. Uh, and so that's, that, that's a very encouraging part of what's, what's happening here. It seems to me that... Um... You know, globally, this is uh, a young person's struggle, but in the U.S., not so much. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, what do you think we can do to inform and energize uh, a new generation of anti-nuclear activists in the U.S.? So I think uh, there are a number of different things that can be done. Um, you know, it's important to have programs and activities uh, that engage young people uh, and in which young people can exercise uh, leadership. Um, you know, uh, my vocabulary, my experiences 
um, my, my being a Luddite um, is not necessarily um, uh, something that inspires young people. Uh, so we, we have to, I think, really make the space, uh, do the education, make, make the commitments. And it has to be done in partnership with, with, with young people. And there are, I mean, one of the people who, who is playing a leading role in ICANN is my former intern, a uh, very bright, you know, wonderful young woman. Um, I, you know, for those, for those uh, in the audience now who may have access to resources, uh, the number of organizations working for nuclear disarmament in the United States are limited uh, and, and are limited in their resources. You know, in the, in the early 80s, when we um, had the nuclear weapons freeze movement, we had that kind of momentum. We had serious money from foundations that made it possible for us to hire educators and organizers across the country, uh, made it possible for us to uh, uh, hire interns uh, and give young people uh, the, the, the space and the opportunity to do movement building. One of the other things that we had then that I've been struggling for for a long time, uh, we had a wonderful frame of reference, which was the call to halt the, the nuclear arms race. It was called the freeze. It was not a commitment to abolition, but it was a commitment to end the arms race. And at that point, it was extremely dangerous state of the arms race between the United States and um, the Soviet Union. Uh, and with that slogan, if you will, um, uh, that seemed eminently fair to people at a time when people understood the danger in a way that they don't now, uh, we had a vehicle to engage uh, the wider public. So, uh, I, you know, some of the history has, has, has not been written. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was in meetings where after Randy had come up with the um, uh, concept, uh, we were talking, how do we take it out to, to more people? Um, we recognize it's not abolition, but the freeze is a necessary step in the direction of abolition. And one of my colleagues, an unsung hero uh, named David McCauley, who was a young organizer in Vermont, uh, having learned from something that had taken place in Western Massachusetts, said, I'm going to take the idea of a nuclear freeze to town meeting, you know, kind of the mythic origin of American democracy. And he said, this, 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 this season, 15 towns will vote for the freeze, and next year, 175. And we thought to ourselves, Dave, that's not going to happen, but go for it. And that, that season, 17 towns voted for it. There was an op-ed in the New York Times uh, in response out of that. In 82, before the, the big demonstration in New York, 330 towns and cities across the Northeast voted for the freeze eight states in referendums voted for the freeze. And it was that kind of force from below uh, that led Ted Kennedy in the Senate and Ed Markey in the House, if you will, to try to capture leadership of the movement and, and push, it, push it forward. And there were similar kinds of activities taking place across Europe. Uh, unlike now with Putin, we had an enlightened uh, Soviet uh, head of state, Gorbachev, who understood that if there was any chance to save the Soviet economy, he had to stop spending money on nuclear weapons. And there was this, this uh, uh, bringing together forces, uh, including, including the Swedes with the uh, common security work that, that, they, that they did, uh, that, that led to the negotiation of the Intermediate Nuclear Weapons, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement in 1987. Most people don't understand 
The Cold War ended in 1947, 1987, with the negotiation of that treaty. It came before the fall of the Berlin Wall. It came before the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it came out of popular movements. Uh, and going back to your question, I think the challenge uh, has been how, how do we how do we come up with a, a phrasing with a, with a paradigm uh, that is similar to what Randy Forsberg came up with? Um, and you know, part of it may lie in in in, in creating a um, a fusion between nuclear disarmament and climate movements, uh, climate sustainability. I mean, we're facing, and your generation knows it better than mine, and faces it more immediately. Uh, the the consequences of, of climate change. I mean, you know, just look with the fires that we've got now, the floods, and, and everything else. Um, it's going to cost trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars, to protect our cities. Uh, you know, we're a coastal, the United States is a coastal society. Uh, you know, Miami is already frequently underwater. How do you protect, how do you protect them? Uh, it's going to take a lot of investment, a lot of innovation. Uh, where's the money for that? Uh, it lies in, what, $1.7 tr trillion that we're spending for new nuclear weapons. And add to that, of course, the, the, you know, the, we face, as Noam Chomsky reminds us all the time, we face two, the humanity faces two existential threats, nuclear war and climate change. Uh, and we, we need to find ways to integrate them. Mm -hmm. Well, on that topic, I mean, in your work, when have you seen successful coalition building? Hmm. That's been a challenge. <laughs> um, you know, it's, there's, there's been efforts, not only in relationship to, um, to climate, but also in relationship to social and economic justice. Uh, and you know, the, the National Priorities Project has provided us an important model in that, in that way. One of my concerns, uh, which grows out of maybe to a degree some of the individualism of, of, of US culture, uh, is the idea of, oops, excuse me, is, 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 you know, I have my issue. I have my thing I'm working on. Uh, and, and, and kind of siloed analysis and siloed movements. Uh, and, you know, the reality is that if we're, going to, if we're going to make the change that we need, we have to integrate both our analysis and our movements. Uh, and and uh, that's, that's the work for all of us. Thank you so much. I think we're going to open up to questions from the audience. Um, yeah, if you'd like to ask a question, please put it in the Q&A and we'll try to get to as many as possible. <laughs> but while we're waiting, um, I'd, I'd love it if you could give us some other notable experiences from your early involvement in, in the movement. Well, I'll, I'll give you two. Um, maybe, I'll maybe focus on one. So, so um, in 1983, so this is ancient history. Uh, in, in 1983, a colleague of mine in San Francisco, who worked for uh, Israel, Israeli-Palestinian peace and uh, opposed to U.S. Um, interventions in, in the Middle East, uh, called me and, and said, uh, "You know, Joe, uh, there's an effort now to turn Boston Harbor into a nuclear weapons base." So the U.S. can send its its uh, uh, warships with nuclear weapons to the Middle East. I thought, okay, well, thanks for that. 
And so I, I began researching and digging into it. And the, uh, what I found was that the, the Reagan administration was seeking to bring out uh, old battleships that had been mothballed uh, in Philadelphia, other places, and to put nuclear armed cruise missiles on those ships and on, on destroyers that would accompany them. Uh, and um, uh, the Reagan people, so somebody there had to have a sense of humor uh, and, and they hold, let's, I mean, it's certainly cynical, let's set up a competition in the Northeast uh, between Boston, uh, Rhode Island, and New York uh, to get this base uh, and the, the, the dollars that will come with it. Uh, and so I, I dug in on that with, with some of my colleagues. Uh, we, we researched um, uh, what the function of this would be, which was actually to take the uh, nuclear threat much closer to the Soviet Union at the height here of the Cold War. Uh, and um, uh, and, and Senator Kennedy and actually the whole Massachusetts congressional delegation had all been supporters of the nuclear weapons freeze. Well, this was a violation of the freeze. It was a new, it was a new nuclear weapon. Uh, and and they, 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 they thought, well, there'll be money here. Bring home the bacon. Uh, so I was also aware at that time of the history of naval nuclear weapons accidents. Uh, uh, looking at, we also looked at, with the help of, of city planners and others, um, you know, the fact that very few permanent jobs would come, uh, that there were better ways to develop the Boston economy uh, than um, in this particular area uh, than to make it into a naval base. But also the reality uh, that this base was going to be directly across uh, the, the, the bay uh, from Logan Airport, one of the runways. Uh, so you face the danger of, uh, of, of that kind of accident. So we, we did a lot of, a lot of education support about it, building, building opposition to it. Uh, at one point, we brought the former uh, operations officer of the Third Fleet to testify before the city, Boston City Council. It was supposed to be slam dunk and you know, to, to give the endorsement of it. Uh, and um, uh, he testified about nuclear weapons accidents that he had, he had witnessed. Uh, and, and their dangers. It's also interesting, you know, you think of the Boston Globe as a liberal newspaper. Uh, I had actually brought uh, Palestinian and um, Israeli uh, advocates for um, you know, opposition to the, the occupation and working for just peace. I brought them to meet with some of the editorial writers at the Globe. Uh, and um, uh, in the last five minutes, these editorial writers who knew what I was doing on the, on the, the possibility of this base turned it around on me uh, and tried to dictate what the terms and conditions uh, for the public debate would be. Uh, and the next day, instead of an editorial about the rights of Palestinians, there was an editorial about you know, limiting the debate uh, for these bases. So it's interesting, as I, as I worked on it, um, uh, at one point I called a reporter for the Globe asking, when are you gonna give some coverage to our opposition? I said, well, didn't you hear? I mean, the owner of the, of the paper has said there's to be no coverage of this uh, until you make it impossible for us not to cover it. Uh, so we continued organizing. We had uh, uh, demonstrations and, and so on. Uh, and then one Saturday morning, I woke up uh, and a guy named Dudley Clenahan, I believe his name was, uh, had written a half page in the New York Times uh, about the, 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 the dangers, the threats in our opposition. That blew it wide open. Uh, and um, uh, we pressed and we won. 
uh, you know, Senator Kennedy had been, because Kennedy wanted it, the entire congressional delegation was lined up behind him. You know, it's pretty rare that you beat Senator Kennedy in Massachusetts on something. Uh, and that in turn, I had a friend who'd been working with the Japanese peace movement. Uh, I had been unaware that the weapon system, the sea launch cruise missile uh, in the Atlantic was actually Reagan's principal escalation of nuclear threats in the Asia Pacific. And that led me, to, he, he shared it, what we were doing with, with people in Japan. And that led me to 1984 on my first trip to Japan and deep, deep work with the Japanese peace movement. Uh, so that's a, it's a long story, but uh, uh, certainly a, a defining one for me. Yes, thank you. I, I'd love it if you could speak a little bit about that first trip. Oh, actually, Helen is here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, I, I actually have a couple of questions, Joseph. Um, I know we don't have much more time, but you had talked about the success of the movement in the 1980s having stemmed from having a clear goal of nuclear freeze that people could get mm -hmm. behind at the time. Mm -hmm. So what do we need to do to um, have nuclear ban be something that people of, you know, Amel's generation mm -hmm. can get behind? And maybe this is also a question for Amel. Um, you know, it, it seems like a pretty straightforward goal, but is it because people haven't thought about nuclear risks recently? Is it because a lot of people in the United States and maybe other NATO countries are kind of complacent that this nuclear thing gives us protections um, in, a, in a scary time? Or like, is it because all the stuff that people have done is to you know the anti-nuclear movement is kind of old and nothing much has happened in the last 20 years what can we do i mean it's a question for both of you and sorry to spring this on you amel but whatever you can add so so i'll jump for a second uh and to say that one of the things that i've been saying is that the real cutting edge for the the nuclear ban movement i don't think is actually in the united states I think it's in the nuclear umbrella states. Uh, it's in the countries in NATO, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, countries that are ostensibly uh, defended by nuclear weapons and by the discipline of NATO. Uh, and if, if one of those countries breaks, uh, if they say, you know, we're rejecting this because we know it's a threat, uh, that begins to unravel the fabric uh, that holds the, 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 the nuclear threats, the nuclear arms race in, in place. In the United States, I think, you know, we're facing, we're facing, as everybody knows, an economic crisis. Uh, I guess the two things I would, would, would focus on, and Helen Caldicott did a great job on this in, in the 1980s, we need to help people understand just quite how dangerous the moment is. I mean, when you look at Ukraine, there is the danger of an escalating nuclear war, right? And, 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 and is great, and maybe even greater than that, is Taiwan. We need to help people understand quite how dangerous it is. And with that, I think we begin to get some leverage in terms of saying, no, you've got to halt the arms race. You've got to cut the spending. And we have real human social needs in our country, right? Uh, we have need for investment, in all kinds of things. The money is there. I mean, Amel's, Amel's future and the future of her generation lies in the kind of resources and priorities the country has. So I think it may lie somewhere in, in there, but you know, no one has the particular answer and we have to work together to try to find 
you know, what, what that particular focus is going to be. Amel, do you have anything um, you can put in? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just add that I think it's, um, to answer your question, I think it's something that people from my generation are generally uninformed about, or it's seen as, as not necessarily distinct from the military industrial complex generally. And I, I don't know that there's the same sense of, of urgency that I think young people globally have about nuclear issues. Um, and I really agree with what Joseph said earlier. I think the solution to this is, is really coalition building um, and, and bringing people who are already working on, on issues of, of climate justice and, and, you know, um, and peace generally uh, to be thinking about nuclear issues. I mean, one of the other things I think we can do, and we've done a little bit of this, is you know, to bring U.S. nuclear weapons victims to give them public forums, right? Uh, you know, Native Americans have, have been especially have been, been devastated by this. But to say, you know, it's sort of shocking for uh, many U.S. people to see a blue-eyed blonde from Utah uh, talk about how her father and father-in-law died from uranium mining, how her sister and daughter uh, died from fallout uh, and how she's struggling for her life. Uh, and you may, I think, you know, at some levels making, making it real, right? Um, uh, you know, the, the, the Japanese uh, A-bomb survivors are, you know, they're dying, but there's still, still some alive and still giving testimony. One of the things that's that sort of, you know, it's a function of being old, that sort of wake up for me. Sometimes when I give talks, my hosts say, look, you've got to, you've got to remember to explain what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki because young people don't know. I mean, how can you not know that? Uh, it's certainly not taught in our schools. Uh, and, and so, you know, teaching, yeah, I remember Howard Zinn. Um, we we uh, did a film where we interviewed him. And, you know, he said, look, if you, if you don't know your history, you can't be free. Every time the president comes on television, and says we're in danger from here or there, not knowing your history, you have no, no basis to make judgments. So we've got to teach you know, the, the, the real history uh, and link that with the kind of dangers and threats that we all face. Yeah, um, I just actually seen the time here and I will be needing to go pretty soon, but I also want to jump in and say what Joseph says about like, having the stories well told and the history well documented and well presented is really important. And I mean, one of the things I will always be grateful to Joseph for is that he had, when my husband and our daughter and, and I were going to Japan in, I wanna say 2000 or 2004, um, he had introduced us to a, a really lovely woman called Watanabe Junko, who was a, an A-bomb survivor, uh, Hibakusha, and she showed us, she graciously showed us around Hiroshima. And, you know, it, reliving that past, I mean, I guess she was then in her 70s. She's probably now almost pushing 90. Um, I think she's at the Vienna conference. But reliving those, those traumas, it, it's difficult for people you know, <laughs> um, I mean, you have to sort of perform your trauma over and mm -hmm. over again until until people in the United States will wake up and understand like this is really outrageous. 
that our government did this. So, yeah, I mean, the more we can figure out ways to get this stuff conveyed. And yes, Joseph, you're quite right. There are a, a whole generation of people who not a little bit, you know, unclear about what happened in Hiroshima, who don't know all the jargon. And I actually, like you were referring to the NPT and I was spelling it out in the chat, you know, because we have to, we have to educate, do a lot of educating. Um, and it's been great to have this session because this will be part of our ongoing project. Um, and I, you know, I want, I'm very grateful to you giving us the time to do this because I know you're in Vienna and you're going to be meeting all kinds of exciting people. And I hope we can have a good debrief when you get back. I have a couple of quick housekeeping notes here. First, I want people to remember that Just World Educational is completely reliant on grassroots support to keep our programming going. So if you haven't donated to us recently, please go to the donate button on our website, www.justworldeducational.org. Um, second, on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, we'll be having our discussion on Israel's role as a nuclear proliferator. We had been hoping for a special guest from that region, but it looks as though that will not work out. So this may end up as being just a discussion between Amel and me, building on the work I've done on the issue dating back to the late 1980s. Anyway, let's go ahead and hold that session at 7 p.m. Eastern. Thirdly, I want everybody to remember that the record, all the records of the conversations in this series are being made available in as timely a fashion as possible. You, we hope you can share them with your friends and networks. Um, this is, see, I'm, I'm traveling. This is, <laughs> this is my little, okay, this is where you go. Um, we're also starting to build all these records into a new online learning hub on our website. And we're also going to, work to make this into a more coherent kind of nuclear abolition 101 course that anybody can just download snippets from here and there and it'll all be organized and ready well we hope it'll be helpful it will need funding however if anybody could like dig into their pocket and make another donation for us that would be great so now I have to say goodbye and big thanks to you, Joseph Gerson, for being with us in the middle of your very you important so um, travels. I know that from Vienna, you will be going on to the, um, what is it, uh, Dismantle NATO conference that'll be in, in Madrid. So, you know, the, the Mickey Mat more, more generally, um, which uh, delighted that you're going, that you're there and we'll hope to hear back from you. So let me just take a second as we leave, um, going back to history for a moment. Uh, you know, I, I have always had the greatest respect for you, Helena, as one of the most courageous correspondents uh, during the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, and just to appreciate how, uh, you know, that, that, that commitment and the energy that you had then as a correspondent and seeing you through to this work. Uh, and then also just to appreciate meeting Amel uh, and to appreciate your, your commitments and looking forward to working with both of you. Thank you for this opportunity. Great. Thank you, Amel. Thank you, so Thank you Joseph. Goodbye, everybody. And see you again Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern. <laughs>